Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Fits on Fantasy podcast. I'm your host, Pat Fitzmorris. My Twitter handle is at Fitz underscore FF. You can find my weekly fantasy rankings at thefootballgirl.com. And I am doing a weekly waiver wire piece at CBS Sportsline. That piece is behind a paywall, but you can spend a couple of dollars a month out of that prize money you're going to be collecting at the end of December. Now, in just a few minutes, I'm going to be bringing on this week's guest. He is Jody Smith of fantasypros.com and CBS Sportsline. Like myself, Jody is a grizzled fantasy football veteran. So he and I are going to put our gray beards together this week and see if we have any fantasy football wisdom to impart to you youngins. Meanwhile, allow me to once again grovel to everyone in the listening audience about rating and reviewing the Fits on Fantasy podcast on iTunes, if you haven't done so already, doing so means a great deal to me and to the show, and I would really appreciate your input. Well, from a fantasy perspective, week seven was interesting. The first two hours or so of the early games were uh, kind of a shit show, if we're being honest. For instance, the Detroit Lions three wide receivers, Kenny Galladay, Golden Tate, and Marvin Jones, were basically all getting blanked while tight end Michael Roberts, who's typically used very sparingly as a receiver, had two touchdown catches. And that was sort of the way things were going for much of the day on Sunday. Uh, The wrong guys were scoring touchdowns, basically. A lot of the bigger name players were laying eggs. Scores were really down across the league. Uh, I know it seemed like in all of my leagues, at least one or two teams won games with what would normally be losing scores. But hey, man, that's fantasy football, and touchdown variance is part of what can make fantasy such a frustrating pursuit at times. Uh, I'm going to kind of talk to Jody about that later on, and I've talked about this in the past with one of my guests. Uh, Unfortunately, I can't recall which one, but we were talking about standard scoring versus PBR scoring, and my guest made the point that for a lot of people, Support for PPR isn't so much about rewarding the act of a catch, but more about being a way to dilute some of the crazy touchdown variants we get in the NFL sometimes. And I get that. I do. Uh, Now, I personally don't care for PPR that much, or at least not for full point PPR. And I think Scott Fish was on to something when he introduced point per first down scoring into the Scott Fish Bowl in 2017. Um, A catch in and of itself is pretty meaningless in an NFL game, and I do have a problem with a two-yard catch being worth more than a 10-yard run, but a first down actually means something in an NFL game. It has tangible value. It it allows you to keep the ball, and for my money, using point per first down scoring is a much better way to dilute touchdown variance than using PPR scoring, and uh, 
Will point per first down scoring ever fully catch on the way PBR scoring has? I don't know. Maybe we have to do something about the name. Point per first down is pretty unwieldy. It doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. Uh, PP1D or PPFD. Yeah, those aren't quite as easy to uh, say as PPR. So now I'm going to talk more about scoring formats with this week's guest. And we are also going to cover some of the big fantasy news from recent days. Uh, It seems like we have one week like this at around the midpoint every year where it's just a crescendo of big doings. And uh, we've seen that the last few days, pretty jam-packed with news, a couple of major trades, some pretty significant injuries. So uh, we are going to talk about that with Jody, especially the trades. We're going to talk about Carlos Hyde being sent to the Jacksonville Jaguars last Friday, which was, uh, you don't get too many Friday trades. And we're going to talk about uh, the Monday trade of Amari Cooper going to the Dallas Cowboys for a first round draft pick. Yes, a first round draft pick. And, uh, you know, a couple big injuries too this week with Marshawn Lynch going on IR. Apparently the Oakland backfield is now going to be some sort of amalgam of Jalen Richard, Doug Martin, and maybe DeAndre Washington. We've had, uh, we've got the Sony Michelle injury, which, you know, luckily relatively minor, no structural damage, but he's probably going to miss at least one week, if not more. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot happening this week and, uh, let's get into all of that now. It is my great honor to be joined this week by Mr. Jody Smith. He is a fellow old school fantasy football guy, which we are going to talk about very soon. And he's also a fellow ginger haired lad. Uh, Jody writes for fantasypros.com. He's also my colleague at cbssportsline.com or CBS Sportsline, excuse me. Follow him on Twitter at Jody Smith NFL. Jody, thanks for being here. Pat, the pleasure is all mine, buddy. It's been a long time in the making for us to finally get together and talk about some old stuff. I'm I'm really excited for that because that's uh, it's an angle that I, I don't really share with a, with a lot of people. They don't want to really talk about pre-internet football and, and all those kind of things. So anytime I can get a chance to to do that, it, it's always really really fun. Yeah, the space is definitely dominated by the twenty and thirty something. So you know, get a couple of us users together, rubbing our gray beards, uh, and you know. We're going to have a good time talking about the the pre-internet days and the uh, pen and paper days. So, um, but Jody, luckily the people that we cater to uh, don't have to rely on pen and paper. They do have the internet, so they have access to maybe the most invaluable thing that you put out each week during the fantasy season, your target analysis piece for Fantasy Pros, which looks like it must be a pretty monstrous undertaking each week, yet it is surprisingly easy to digest as a reader. So tell people what you're doing with that article every week. Well, it was kind of uh, an opportunity for me to to, uh, present something that is discussed almost everywhere. I mean, everyone knows what's target R and who, who does well at it. But what I wanted to do was present every target and like you said, an easy to, to digest kind of thing where I just break it down. I sort it by targets and then by team. And then I just try to find two or three interesting tidbits from each team. Uh, it ends up being, you know, a monster article. I, I don't anticipate that there's that many people that would want to take the time to read 
uh, all seven to 8,000 words of it, but you know, it's kind of presented where a situation where I, I expect people will pick through their favorite teams or maybe in a particular matchup they have coming forward. I would think that they'd want to look through and find the teams and their relevant takeaways from it. I really enjoy, I, I think actually accumulating all of that data, looking at thousands of passes and yardage and targets each week. It really helps me understand everything about teams and what's going on, which players are trending in the right direction, which ones haven't been doing as well with given opportunities. And as a writer, it definitely helps me keep track of things. Like I said, uh, you know, I know we'll chat here while we're on a, on, on the podcast, but um, as you know, Pat, like when you're, informed when you do a podcast spot or a radio spot and you actually just know these things in in your head it makes it really really relaxing like you can just talk and you don't have to go through notes you don't have to consult you know your screen here on your computer you can just be like oh i already knew about carlos hides 2.6 yards per carrier you know whatever the target thing is when you know that kind of data it just helps you overall be a better football fan and for me it definitely helps me be a better writer Sure. And I mean, that target piece is uh, the reason I find it valuable is because the target distribution is definitely not static. And I mean, just trying to get a handle on, say, uh, the Jaguars wide receivers, for instance. I mean, like I have a hard time sorting those guys out every week and, you know, looking at the snaps and the targets and it's it's tricky, you know, like um, and, and there are a lot of others trying to keep the Williamses straight in, uh, you know, for the Chargers. That seems like it's kind of uh, ebbed and flowed a little bit in one or another's favor. So, uh, you know, what you do is really pretty valuable in that regard. Um, Jody, not only do we go way back with fantasy football, and not only do we both work for CBS Sportsline, and not only are we both redheads, we also have one other thing in common. Both of our baseball teams just fell short of the World Series getting knocked out this past week. But here's the difference, Jody. Your Astros won a championship last year. My Brewers have never won a championship and have not been to the World Series since 1982. So uh, it had to sting a little less for you, maybe. Yeah, I was really rooting for the Brewers because I got to tell you, it's been really, really fun in the last decade as a as a big baseball fan. It's been really fun to see all these long droughts, and we've seen the Red Sox finally beat the curse of the Bambino and then the Cubs, that was the biggest one. And then the Astros. So the Brewers were, that was the last team that was alive in the playoffs. It was like, you know what? The Brewers haven't won in the longest time. It would be really fun to see them come back and win. And and I'm not bitter uh, that the Astros lost the Red Sox. They were the best team in baseball. And I wasn't necessarily rooting against the Dodgers because of any uh, spite. I thought the uh, LA fans were, were fine last year. There wasn't anything, um, no takeaway. Sometimes it can be ugly or bitter or sore losers. But yeah, I would consider um, along with the 2005 University of Texas uh, championship that that was definitely the, the greatest sports moment of my life. I, I'm not uh, ashamed to admit that uh, I did cry when the Astros won on November 1st last year. And it, it was such a thrill because it, going through all those bad times when they had to rebuild uh, it, it, it was tough, and I have to admit that there were times I just couldn't stand watching anymore. And anyone who sees me on Twitter knows that I'm the first one who gets upset uh, and will turn games off when I have a feel about my team. Like I knew the Astros' bats were cold, and as soon as I got down two or three runs, that that was going to be it. But, you know, when you watch your team and you, and, and you have a lot of heart into it, you understand your team and you know how things go. And I don't want to come across like I'm a, you know, a bad fan or a fair-weather fan for – 
uh, turning the games off. You just have to understand when you really love a team, sometimes the, the negatives outweigh the positives. As a matter of fact, there was a study that said something like between five and seven times that the pain from given from sports uh, far outweighs five or seven times more than the pleasure that comes from it. <laughs> I feel like that certainly applies to me. So sometimes you just have to, you know, take a step back. I used to get really upset about fantasy football losses, but I don't as much anymore. Yeah, same here. Same here. I mean, maybe it's uh, having all these teams that's jaded me a little bit. I've talked about that in recent pods, but uh, <laughs> yes, yeah, no. Helps. The uh, the the Astros have definitely, you know, they're a, a war machine these days, and I, I was frankly pretty surprised. I thought the Red Sox maybe had more loose threads than the Astros had this year, but uh, you know, I think I think they're going to be back again and again. I mean, it was it was the bats. The best pitching staff they've ever had. The bats let them down, and it's been that way for a while. A while you could, you know, you could see it coming if you watch as many Astros games as I did. You, you kind of saw like mm, this offense is going to be a, you know, a problem in the playoffs, and and that's uh, ultimately uh, what what did it for them. Yeah, it was kind of the same. The Brewers sort of went cold with the bats at a a, a bad time, and all year it was me wondering whether they were going to have enough pitching to do it. You know, was the bullpen going to get exhausted? But uh, you know, in the end, the pitching was fine. It was the bats just kind of going dead at the wrong time. Um, so, yeah, Jody, let's talk old school fantasy football. When did you start playing and what kind of leagues were you in back then? I was about I, I want to say we were huge back in the, the early 90s. We were huge Tecmo Super Bowl fans. That was the first game that actually kept real stats and, and would log them season long. And we would write every every stat. We would stay up all weekend. We'd, we'd go to the local blockbuster or whatever and, and rent the game. And we'd just stay up all weekend playing and we wouldn't sleep and we'd write all the stats down in a notebook. And, and we, we kept a notebook. I've still got it. As a matter of fact, I like to look at it once in a while. It's pretty fun. But I ended up taking that idea and something that my older brother had started, which actually was fantasy football. We had just never heard that term before. And we said, well, this is interesting. This is a way for us to squeeze more football out of it. Let's give it a try. So basically in 1991, uh, six of us got together and we made up our own rules kind of based on real football where all touchdowns were worth six and Tecmo where, you know, we used some of the rules and the scoring from that. So um, that league became a touchdown only league. And I'm proud to say that, you know, here in 2018, that league is still going. Uh, so from 91 through 2018, that's 28, 28 years or so. Um, three of the guys have been in it the entire time. Uh, and another four or five guys have been in it probably 25 years or so. The rest, everyone else is, is a real solid owners, most of which are uh, 10 plus years in. And it still to this day remains a six point touchdown only league. Basically, we start a quarterback, five flex spots, which none can be quarterbacks. It's just running back, wide receiver, tight end, kicker and defense. And that's what we started, uh, you know, it's a long, long time ago. And, uh, you know, it's worked. And it took 25 years for someone to finally win back to back. So something about what we're doing really encourages bad teams to get good really quickly because that's what you see. We we don't do a snake draft. It was just a straight draft like the NFL draft because that's all we knew. You know, we were just kids. We, you know, there was no resources, uh, Pat, available. Actually, there were. Just We just didn't know of them. But there was no fantasy football magazines. There was no internet back then. So, you know, we just had to make up rules 
on the fly. So we just kind of follow what the NFL did or maybe what Tech Mobile did. And, and like I said, it was really, really simplistic rules and it, it hasn't really been problematic. And as I've branched off to become someone who now understands the reasoning for why there's yardage bonuses and PPR and this and that, that league has just stayed straight touchdown. So, uh, you know, the years when someone like Megatron would, would catch uh, 120 balls for four touchdowns. Well, he wasn't a very good player in that league because he only scored four times. But, uh, you know, it's the, the pros and cons of it. You know, a running back back in the 90s named Brad Baxter from the New York Jets, fullback. Guy would run like 10 times for 14 yards, but would end up with eight touchdowns. Well, that guy was like MVP back in the day. So just kind of one of them funny quirks of uh, different scoring. Sure. It was, uh, you know, like back in those days when it was uh, like Robert Smith for the Vikings would get like 13 or 1400 total yards from scrimmage and score like three touchdowns. And who, who was? Oh yeah. Tiki, Tiki Barber was one. I think he went over 2000 one year with uh, five touchdowns. So in our league, it's, you know, he's uh he's somebody that's either a free agent or, or, or on your bench. And I understand that that's hard for 98, 99% of people to fathom that, that there's, idiots that still play like that but you know what that's what the guys like over the years pat i've tried suggesting lots of uh more progressive thoughts and things that i think would make the league fair and i get mad resistance so i've just learned you know what it it is what it is you know i've got my other i'm in countless other dynasty leagues and uh in industry leagues and you know what i can get my fix doing that i guess we'll just leave the old elvis football league just like it is (laughs) that's awesome and uh it's pretty cool that you know, Tecmo was the genesis of it too. And, uh, you know, oddly enough, like 91 was my first season long league too. And, uh, we, we've got that one still going. It was, it was 12 teams the first two years and it's been 16 ever since. Well, we started with six, but you know what? True to form with the uh, Tecmo Super Bowl, my first ever pick in 1991 round one, I think I was a third pick was, uh, QB Eagles himself, Randall Cunningham. And then week one that year, Bryce Pop oh, from yes. Green Bay tore his uh, hit, hit Randall Cunningham towards ACL in my first season. I ended up uh, oh. six and 10. So uh, it didn't go very well. But you, you know, you're talking back then when 21 touchdowns, 21 in, 20 or 21 touchdown passes, that led the league. That was a lot back then. Completely different. I mean, honestly, a night and day difference between today's NFL and what that was. Yeah, who were some of the other guys who did serious work for you back then, who took you deep into the playoffs or all the way to a title? Oh, Emmett Smith will always be my hero. He delivered my uh, first ever title. And uh, this is, you know, again, true to form before the internet. I didn't even find out that I'd won. I want to say it was either Christmas Eve or Christmas night game against the Giants. And uh, I had uh, to go to work overnight. And I didn't even know that I'd won until they delivered the uh, Houston Chronicle uh, the next day at about uh, 4 a.m. And I went and looked and I had to check the box scores and, and you know, checking the box scores. That's something, you know, I've told this story before, but I used to steal newspapers from, from the, uh, the bus stop in uh, high school because I had to, you know, finish my scoring. So uh, I would steal a newspaper and uh, that would be the official way that I would check scores. Cause that was the only way to do it. You know, pen and paper with a notebook, and uh, box scores from the Houston Chronicle or the U- USA Today Sports, and, and that was the only way to do it. And and that's all. You know, like I said, this this wasn't a, such a thing as the internet back then. So that's all you could do. Wasn't that crazy that we would sometimes go to bed on a Sunday night without knowing whether you would won? 
Oh, you had no idea because you would only get, you know, back then there was only one or two games on at a time. So you'd flip back and forth between NBC and CBS this is before Fox was even in the picture. And then maybe if you're lucky for the few of us that actually had cable, then you would get a little bit of time to check NFL primetime with Boomer and all of them talking about the games. And they wouldn't talk about every touchdown. They would just gloss over some of the highlights and that would help you a little bit. But yeah, I mean, true to form, you didn't know until Monday morning the vast majority of things. And a lot of times the late West coast games wouldn't even be in the newspaper until the Tuesday uh, newspaper. Um, yeah. The Tuesday edition. So you had to wait an additional day to kind of finalize things. Right, man. If, if you would have told us back then when you would, you know, not m- maybe you had an inkling, maybe you knew that, you know, you had a, a bunch of guys kind of go off or maybe you knew that a lot of your key guys laid eggs or whatever. But you know, if you would have told us back then that there would one day be live scoring where you could watch it in real time as as guys were making plays. I mean, it just would have been beyond us. Well, just go back and watch some old uh, 80s thing, and, and you're watching a baseball game, and it drives you crazy because there's nothing on the screen except the baseball, and you don't know the ball or the strike count or what the inning is or anything because that little thing is not up in the corner telling you everything you want to know. And then to, to think that these days they have – a strike zone embedded on a TV screen. It tells you everything you need to know. And the, the little screen up there shows you balls, counts, pitch counts, strikes, everything. I mean, just everything today is all this data and information is just on demand, in your face, ready to roll. But back in the day, Pat, when you and I started, nothing. You're talking, it's so antiquated. Most of the most of the people listening to this are people that are under 30, just have no idea what it was like to grow up and, and that kind of thing. But you know, the, the, everything that's available now, it, you know, it does make it better. I mean, you don't have to work near as hard nowadays to figure things out or get fantasy information. I mean, it's almost instantaneous, but back then you had to really work. So to be good or successful at fantasy football back in the nineties, man, you had, you had to earn it. You really, you really did. People that wanted to to make it that commitment to, to find data and to read all throughout the off season and study things. Those are the ones that, that really did well back then. Yeah, you had to do your legwork for sure. Uh, so since you're an old school guy, Jody, I'm curious, what is your stance now on like standard scoring versus PPR? I've always generally been more anti-PPR, but I've accepted it. You know, it, It's to the point, Pat, where your thinking just becomes PPR. I mean, you automatically think. But for instance, uh, one of the things that I'll tell people about, about PPR is if uh, – Julian Edelman takes a wide receiver screen behind the line of scrimmage and it gets and catches it and gets dropped for a three yard loss. Well, that was a play that cost the Patriots. That was a negative outcome play for New England. But in PPR fantasy football, that is point uh, zero seven points, which is ridiculous. You're rewarding a negative play, but at the same time, see PPR came around during the 90s still when running backs dominated everything when guys like Ladanian Tomlinson were just scoring crazy points and Priest Holmes and Larry Johnson these guys were just dominating everything and it was just unfair so PPR first was envisioned as a way of kind of evening things out but see the rules of PPR hasn't progressed along with the game nowadays it's the exact opposite is true running backs are considered replaceable assets. They're just a dime a dozen and wide receivers have just become so much bigger and stronger, faster and better. They're the ones who are dominating fancy football, but the rules have stayed the same. So what you're seeing is this huge um, 
imbalance between running backs and wide receivers now where wide receivers are just so much safer and, and more valuable. And I, I don't really have a view. Um, my, my view has always been like people forget sometimes fantasy football is supposed to be fun. It's supposed to be an escape from your job or from frustrations in your life. And people sometimes take it too seriously and get too competitive and are, are just trying to do what they're told rather than realizing this is supposed to be fun. Why don't we make it fun again? Why don't I do this? Because I, I want to try something different. People forget that. So I, I don't want anyone to get pigeonholed in anything. Try, you know, try anything you want where, where, like I said, to wrap it up, I mean, your thinking has just become PPR. It's just what is accepted today. It's just the norm. So your thinking kind of goes along with that. But I, I think given a choice, uh, I'm with uh, Andy Behrens and, and uh, Jake Seeley uh, on the, if I had to give a choice, I would be, uh, I would prefer standard over PPR. It's just that, it, you know, we're a dying breed. Yeah, I'm generally in that camp too. But I mentioned in the intro that I think um, one of the things about standard versus PPR, that the PPR advocates like it, I think, because it sort of dilutes the touchdown variance that you get. And, you know, like this past week was a week with a lot of touchdown variance. We saw with, uh, you know, the Detroit wide receivers getting shut out and uh, Michael Roberts catching a couple of TD passes. But then, you know, you've got your league, your original league, your OG league that is all about the touchdown variance. That's nothing but the touchdown variance. So, yeah, to each his own. So tell me, I want a league that takes away from touchdowns. That To me, like most of the guys in my league would be like, what? <laughs> the vast majority of, of guys in my league are more casual guys. They won't, They don't want nothing to do with uh, embracing anything else. Like I, I, my, my, my former co-host, Clay, he's flat refused really to join other leagues. He wants nothing to do with anything. He wants to concentrate solely – on on the Elvis Football League, and you know, I, sometimes I'm kind of jealous. I'm like, man, it must be nice to just worry about one league. Whereas me, like in an Elvis League now, like I'm the defending champion this year. It's first time I've won in you know four or five years, and and that's great and all. But but really, it's like if I start struggling, like right now, I'm, as the defending champion, I'm three and four. But you know, there's other leagues, there's other dynasty leagues, and there's other even rider leagues where I'm still undefeated. So it's like, yeah, I'm gonna go ahead and uh, start concentrating a little more on those now. So Jody, let's let's turn to some of the newsworthy stuff that's gone down, and and really this seems like one of those periods we get them every so often where like there's a big whirlwind of midseason activity, and uh, it started with the Carlos Hyde trade last Friday. I mean, this was the rare deal that goes down on a Friday afternoon. Uh, in fact, geez, when the news broke, I was in a line of cars waiting to pick up my kids from school, and I swear. As soon as I heard the news on Sirius XM radio, the line of cars started moving. And then I had to hustle my daughter straight over to this drop-off point for a weekend sleepover thing she was doing with some friends. So I had no chance to get on my phone and start trying to pick up Chubb in some of the leagues where he might have been available. Um, (laughs) So what do you think, Jody? I mean, is this a massive windfall for Chubb owners or is his value maybe being overblown somewhat? Because... Like yesterday, he was not having a very good day early on against the Buccaneers defense that, I mean, on top of being pretty bad to begin with, was missing defensive tackle Gerald McCoy, their best defensive player, best run defender. Now, eventually Chubb got going and he finished with 18 carries for 80 yards and a touchdown. Uh, And the next three opponents for the Browns, Steelers, Chiefs, Falcons, three defenses that have been gashed at times this year. So what's the near-term outlook for him? For Chubb, I mean, you obviously have to think this is going to be a great thing, but 
really, I'll feel like uh, I'll feel a lot more confident in Chubb's fantasy ability when they get rid of, of Hugh Jackson, who clearly doesn't know what he's doing. He just you know, every time he opens his mouth, it seems like he, he he's just someone who doesn't have that filter when, that tells him the bad ideas that should come out of his of his mouth and which ones he should keep in. But getting rid of Carlos Hyde, obviously a, a really good thing for, for Chubb. And, and I kind of have to admit that I got um, suckered into uh, Duke Johnson and uh, DFS a little bit uh, yesterday, unfortunately, because, I mean, he was named the nominal starter, which I wasn't necessarily – snookered by but i thought okay now Hugh finally has been talking that he needs to get chubb some more touches and he needs to get duke johnson more touches they're, well, they're finally going to do it now because i got rid of uh carlos hyde so duke's going to be more involved at least as a receiver and sure enough i just did the the target work for him today uh it was more of the usual four catches on four targets great but did um, you know nothing basically as a running back and uh like you said with which uh, the, the, he's going to be game script dependent because if the he's not going to be able to do much as a receiver, and if the Browns uh, continue to fall behind in these games, it's going to be a little bit of an issue. But as as for Hyde, um, people are still I think overrating Hyde. Um, I did a, a study this off season where um, something that Pro Football Reference offers, which is expected points outcome versus expected points. Um, it averaged which running backs or wide receivers in the red zone. It's data that I kind of purged, but which team scored more and or less points versus an expected average. It's kind of like uh, wins above replacement in baseball, but a football version of it strictly based on, on the red zone. And I tweeted about this uh, a few months ago, and it was a tweet that actually became quite popular. Jordan Howard was easily the best red zone runner on football last year. The Bears scored something like 20 or 21 more points by handing him the ball than they would have versus – any other running back. Well, Carlos Hyde was a negative five on that outcome. So he was one of the worst uh, running backs that was getting a regular amount of, of carries. He wasn't LeGarrette Blunt bad, who actually ended up being the absolute worst in that study. But Carlos Hyde scored several touchdowns early on this year. And he he did well when he topped 20 carries, which happened, uh, I want to say, three out of four or three out of five games, something like that. But if you look at his yards per carry and his overall efficiency, he's been getting worse kind of as the season went on. This trade came out of nowhere. I think it was simply because they realized he's not – Hyde's not getting better. He's not someone that uh, we're going to be able to have a lot of success moving forward with. So I, I think that they true down – actually realized that Chubb was pretty talented. They needed to find a, a way to get him more opportunities. And a surprising trade, it really came out of nowhere, but I think ultimately that's what they did. So I can see a Chubb would be the one player out of this whole deal that I'd want. I don't like the landing spot for Hyde, and I think we're going to talk about that. But Chubb, is, he's going to be the kind of guy that if he can get that 16 to 20 touches a game, which maybe one or two come as a receiver, but uh, I think he's got a, you know RB2 upside. So I'm pretty excited to see uh, how it plays out. Yeah, you're you're down in SEC country. Are you buying the talents of Chubb? I mean, he was like this freshman phenom. Then he had the you know disastrous knee injury, but uh, you know maybe he never quite got back to the explosive athlete he was his freshman year while he was at Georgia, but you know maybe he just wasn't far removed enough from the injury. So um, you know, but are are you in on the talents basically from what you've seen? 
you know, I think we all just love Chubb until that thing. And then the same thing kind of happened to Sony Michelle. You know, they, these, both of these guys were on the same team and they were awesome. And then both of them got hit by, uh, you know, pretty devastating knee injuries. Only time will tell if he can fully recover. We saw in that one game where he, he had, what, three carries for something like 110 yards and two touchdowns. So obviously he's, uh, he's flashed that ability. I mean, we'll see once defenses have a little bit of film on him and, and can exploit those matchups and he becomes more of a focal point. We'll see uh, what comes of it. But I, I do actually think that uh, he'll end up being a better runner than uh, Carlos Hyde. So I, I, like I said, I, I really want to see what he can do with, with 12, 15, uh, 18 uh, touches moving forward and, it's one. It's one of the things that uh, I'm. I'm really looking forward to uh, the most from all these uh, trades that that have happened. Is watching how that plays out in the next four weeks. Yeah. So what what the hell happens? Do you think when the Jaguars get uh, Leonard Fournette backs? Like, say he comes back in week ten after their bye, and he's good to go. Like, what kind of is this trade? Like, almost sort of an admission that they can't work Fournette to death anymore. That he's just too brittle. I don't know. Maybe, maybe the Jaguars said, you know what? This Mike McCarthy and Pete Carroll anti-fantasy football <laughs> backfield plan, it's really a lot of fun. Maybe we should give that a whirl. Let's get TJ more involved. Let's see who can we add to the mix. So they made a trade for, for Carlos Hyde. I mean, look, the Jags, the Jags offensive line, it's a little banged up right now. But overall, the 10th and run blocking over at Football Outsiders DVOA. So we've got a pretty good line there. The problem is... Fournette, 3.9 yards to carry as a rookie, and he's been 3.6 in the limited time that he's played this year. TJ Yeldon was over five yards a carry for behind that same line last year, and he's been over well over four this year. And I, granted, I understand it's change of pace carries versus uh, someone who's running between the tackles and grinding it out, but I'm a little concerned. Like I said, uh, I talked about how Carlos Hyde, his efficiency ha- has dipped down where he's been below even three yards a carry a couple games this year. So, uh, you know, you've got these two banger running backs that, that aren't really breaking a lot of long plays, even though, uh, you know, Leonard Fournette has shown he's got that top uh, top speed. And I think Fournette has uh, has actually overachieved so far in the NFL as a receiver. You know, a lot of times he wasn't asked to receive much at LSU. So he had this handle coming out of the draft. He can't catch, so he's going to have to work on his pass blocking and all that. Well, sometimes – no matter how much film we watch, sometimes we realize just because a player wasn't asked to do a particular skill set in college doesn't mean he can't do it. He just just wasn't part of what the Tigers did at LSU. So I think, like I said, Fournette is overachieved as a receiver. But moving forward for the Jaguars, I expect that Fournette will sit out through their bye. So he'll probably return in week 10. But at that point, I mean, they're going to want to keep him healthy. So I'm guessing – you're going to see, uh, unfortunately, uh, a pretty even split of, of carries between Fournette and uh, Carlos Hyde, and it's basically going to, instead of having one running back that might have weekly RB1 upside, now we're just going to have uh, another team with two guys who are on the RB3 radar, and it's just that much more frustrating. And, and you know, thoughts and prayers to all the people that uh, invested a first-rounder on Fournette because it's going to be – uh, basically impossible for him to uh, pay off that kind of uh, ADP moving forward as we get closer to the fantasy playoffs. Yeah, I'm afraid you're uh, probably right on that. I mean, it's just the odds of him 
recouping any of that value now and even performing like an RB1 once he gets back seems so remote. Um, so, Jody, we had a deal go down today as well. We're recording on a Monday. Uh, Amari Cooper traded to the Dallas Cowboys for a first-round draft pick. So what do we make of Cooper in Dallas? The Dallas passing game, I don't necessarily blame the wide receivers that they've been part of it. it it's been Dak Prescott. Uh, Prescott, he's just struggled this year. I think he's got three or four games where he's been under under 200 yards. He's starting to trend in the right direction. It's it's hilarious that this trade went down today on, on two factors. First is that the Patriots got Josh Gordon for a fifth rounder, while the good old Jerry – Jerry Jones, good old Cowboys, trading up a first for Amari Cooper. Now, I understand uh, Cooper has a lot less red flags, and, and uh, he's younger. He's actually younger than Cooper Cup, and he's around the same age as uh, – oh, he's playing right now, rookie for the Falcons. Why Why his name um, – yeah, Calvin Ridley, that's my guy. I, just his name totally gave me – he's around the same age there <laughs> as, uh, as Ridley, which – you know, so I understand. But And, and th- I guess the good thing for Cooper is that – this is Dallas bye week, so they've got a week, an extra week to kind of get him prepped. But it's just funny on the other front that this was the best week of the season for Alan Hearns and for Michael Gallup. They both had their best game from a target, from a catch, and from a yardage standpoint this year. And then they quickly turn around and, and uh, trade for a potential wide receiver one. Uh, I think the Cowboys probably overpaid, so – and they don't have – they haven't shown – Scott Linehan's office hasn't shown any indications this year that it's going to be able to mount a credible wide receiver one, and that will go right in line with uh, Amari Cooper's erratic season that he's having. Uh, Pat, you can appreciate this. In two articles last week, I referenced uh, Amari Cooper as the fantasy football version of Brett Saberhagen. Brett Saberhagen was known as a pitcher back in with the Royals in the, in the 80s. He would be like a Cy Young candidate on even years, and then on odd years, for some weird reason, the guy's ERA would jump up in the fours or the fives, and, and it just like happened for like eight or ten straight years. It was it was an odd thing. So I, I referred to Amari Cooper for a while this season. That was the same thing happening. He would be a dud. And then he would blow up the next week for 100 plus in the touchdown. So everyone would get excited, put him right back in their lineup or pay them money for DFS. And then he would have another dud week. And it happened for the first five or six weeks until, uh, you know, last week he was due for another big game. And then, of course, uh, he got hit with a concussion. So you can't really blame him for that. And then this was uh, Oakland's bye week. So obviously another zero. So. I'm kind of excited to see, uh, you know, he needed, I think, a new environment. I don't know that things will get better for him moving forward with uh, Prescott over Derek Carr. But, uh, you know, it'll be – I hope that they uh, continue to go out of their way to get him those eight or ten targets that he needs to be a consistent productive player because they sure weren't doing it in Oakland. Yeah, I'm like torn on whether this is actually I've, – I've got him in the Scott Fishball, and I don't know whether this is a net positive for him or a net negative in the short term, like for this year. I don't know what it does to – it might just be about the same. But it is interesting that you know the Cowboys are willing to give up this first-round pick, which is probably going to be somewhere in the middle of the first round. You know, It's not like uh, – I don't know, unless maybe they're – yeah, and they've they've actually been doing pretty well with their first rounders uh, pretty recently here. So yeah, I mean, I, mean, I don't know some some teams view uh, future draft picks and all that as as the most important 
asset. And I mean, they're like dynasty owners. They want to hoard all their picks. They, they they use them really as currency. And then other teams like New England are like, yeah, it's fine. Whatever. We don't need it. We'll get more. So then over on the Raiders side, I mean, Jared Cook owners have already been feeling like, you know, they rolled Yahtzee with him this season. And now all of a sudden, like, I don't know. I mean, I, am I crazy to think like Jared Cook might be more valuable going forward than Rob Gronkowski? Well, he might be from a from a target standpoint. He he cooled off a little bit here after around week four or five. He's cooled off a little bit, but you know he's not going to get up there with. He's not going to end up with with Zach Ertz because I just finished reading up, writing up the Eagles and Zach Ertz has something like eighteen more targets and nineteen more catches than. Uh, Next highest. Travis Kelsey. Oh, wow. And, 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 you know, Kelsey is second in both of those categories. So, Ert, and nobody knows that. I mean, it's been so quiet. Everyone's been talking about Gronk or Kelsey, which I know for good reason. We're used to it. But here's Zach Ertz so far out in first place in both of those categories that, it, you know, it's almost not even fair. It's something like 130% ahead, something crazy like that. So, uh, Cook, you know, it's limited upside. If anything, taking Cooper out of the mix is probably going to force uh, more coverage to get shifted towards Cook because the other uh, wide receivers in Oakland don't ins- exactly inspire a lot of confidence. I mean, Jordy's he, he's probably overproduced what I thought he would do, but but overall, you know, clearly the Raiders are completely tanking because for John Gruden to I guess he's got what three, three first, three, three extra first round picks coming up. So my guess is uh, his his best objective is hoping that maybe one of these three picks will end up being like eighty percent of as good as a player like maybe I don't know Khalil Mack maybe. Yeah, if he's lucky. Yeah, I mean, which that's that's the that's the crazy part to me is how uh, you know you you <laughs> clearly that there were some other issues there, but how you. How you trade away, you know, a special player like Mac, you know, for extra picks that, you know, one out of every 10 or 15 actually can become a player that's anywhere near that good. I don't know. Maybe it's uh, maybe this was like a 20 year plan for Gruden to get back at the Raiders. Once the old man died, he said, you know what, I'm going to go back with the sun and I'm going to destroy that organization from the ground up for screwing me over in, in the late 90s and the early 2000s. And I'm going to get them back. Watch this. Maybe it's just like the Houston Astros, Jody. They gotta they gotta burn it all down and hit rock bottom before they can, uh, you know, rise phoenix like from the ashes. Well, it's gonna be some gonna be some gonna be some lean years for Raiders fans coming up. I guess they're used to it though. <laughs> I am once again joined by Jody Smith of FantasyPros.com and CBS Sportsline. Follow him on Twitter at Jody Smith NFL. You have been part of the Twitter fantasy football community for a long time, Jody, and I know you're a genuinely good dude who's built up a lot of goodwill within that community. And as proof of that, I can point to the way that a lot of the people you interact with on Twitter have helped your son with a collection he's been working on. Could you tell people more about that? Yeah, um, it's just amazing the, the generosity and the, the interest in, in so many good good people out there, and and the vast majority of them, Pat, were people that I didn't even know that just saw this get retweeted, or just wanted to help out, you know, and, and went out of their way to send my son license plate. Now, my son, for those that don't know, uh, my son was was diagnosed with autism uh, at a pretty young age. When when he got to be about one and a half or two, we realized he was significantly behind with speech and some uh, 
developmental phases. And, uh, you know, we got the diagnosis from uh, Texas Children's Hospital that, that he was on the uh, high functioning side of autism. But, you know, when something like that, it, it's heartbreaking to hear something like that, but uh, immediate action was needed. So a lot of therapy, a lot of uh, changing the way we had presented food to him. And, and we just had to make a lot of life changes. But as he's gotten older, my son has, you know, he kind of will obsess over small things for a little while. Like there was a year when I showed him a bird outside and he got really interested in birds. So I was like, you know, this is kind of fun learning about these birds outside. So I kind of got excited about it. But also I've learned that he's inherited little DNA things. So um, he got from me, I've always had this interest in maps and things like that. And, and he did too. And we took our first trip and he had memorized how we were going to get there, all the freeways, every turn he knew. And he was telling me like he mimics my old Garmin. He speaks like it. he'll say in one quarter mile, turn left on first Avenue. And, and he still does that to this day. But, but that sort of obsession with maps and locations and things led to an interest. One day I said, hey, look at that license plate. It's from Missouri or whatever it was. And that became his obsession. Every car that rolled by, he was having me look at license plates. And he would have me speed up to unsafe speed to try to catch up to anything he saw and how disappointing it would be when it was always one of them dealership temporary plates. But that became him looking at license plates. And then it became him actually getting license plates. And uh, once I started sharing the pictures with him on Twitter, you know, like I said, so many great people got excited about it and said, Hey, I've got a spare license plate out in the garage. Would he like that? And I would get so many questions of people asking, Hey, does he have blank state? So yeah, the um, thanks for the most part, and anyone here listening, you, you have my utmost appreciation and, and thanks for for sending in so many license plates but he was able to finally um get all 50 and the the collection actually started growing uh, international as well and it was just like i said i'm just so appreciative of so many people that just just out of the goodness of their own hearts and all to the person refused. I always tried to offer, let me, you know, let me send you $10 or something on PayPal to cover any shipping. And everyone, everyone refused and just wanted to be a part of a, of a good story. And, uh, you know, I always tried my best to thank people on Twitter with a nice picture and to make sure that, that I got it right. Cause there were times when, you know, we get two, three, sometimes four packages a week. And, and you know, Brandon was, he was getting really excited about the mail. Cause as far as he knew, it was the mailman. It was just bringing him license plates. So he didn't quite understand, uh, you know, how it was acquired. He just, you know, for a while there, we were running out and checking the mail multiple times a day because he was so excited about it. But it, it, it's cooled off a little bit. I think when he finally completed the collection, uh, he stopped worrying so much about the mail. So that gave us a, l a little break. Yeah, that was cool. That was fun to follow the quest and, uh, you know, see you and always tweeting and thanking whoever sent it, dropping their Twitter handle in your, uh, you know, tweet along with a picture of Brandon holding the plate. So like, you know, Hey, we, yeah. Mi Mississippi, Mississippi was the last, uh, last piece of the puzzle. That was the last uh, state, which was kind of funny. Cause he actually, we actually drove through that state for the first time this year. You know, you and your family live down in Houston, Jody, and that's, it's one of the major American cities I haven't visited yet. It seems like the first two things that people mention when they talk about Houston is the ungodly humidity and how terrible the traffic can be. But Tell me about the good stuff. What do you love most about Houston? 
Uh, you know what? One thing people don't talk about is the sheer size of Houston. As far as I know, Houston geographically from a square mileage standpoint is the second largest city in the United States. And I think only Jacksonville, Florida actually has, is bigger, which is kind of an odd thing. But but really, it would take you an hour and a half without traffic to get from, from the east end of Houston, from the west end of, of Houston uh, on the freeways. And um it's not that necessarily I love the city of Houston. You know, the economy here has always generally been pretty strong. Um, it just happens to be, you know, where I was born and raised and I met my wife here and all that. But for the most part, um, you want to say what you like about Houston. I'll take you – let's reverse it for about one year. I've never been so proud to be a part of a community that came together after Hurricane Harvey because it, w- it was the most amazing thing to see um, as my my late mother-in-law's house was devastated. She got three feet of water in the house, and it was a really hard time for, um, you know, my wife, as she had just inherited this house and all of these possessions, she hadn't had a chance to go through them yet because my mother-in-law passed away in June, and my wife always took the omen that that's why her mom died because she knew this was coming and she would have never been able to survive such a thing, but it was amazing to see thousands of people helping. Uh, we had so many church volunteers to come help us deconstruct basically this whole house. And I didn't know, I'm not the handiest guy. I, I can type with the best of them. But when it comes to knowing how to fix things around the house, I'm not the best. But people were showing up. Uh, we had members of the Coast Guard walking around, volunteering to move furniture. People were just walking around with uh, plates of food, just everyone coming together. And I told my wife and her friends at one time, I said, you know, what would be really great if we all as a society could, could do this all the time, instead of having to have some dramatic event happen that, that brings everyone together. And, but, and, you know, it made me proud to be from, from this area and, and, and all that. But other things about Houston that I've found humorous, over the years is the mystique that apparently comes with Galveston. Now I understand that this comes from everyone. You don't appreciate things that you see every day that, that you're around all the time. Like I went to uh, Washington DC with Jake Seeley's uh, flex draft this August. And, you know, I met up with a couple of locals there and they're just kind of like, yeah, yeah, there's a Capitol building just driving by. And I'm like, Whoa, you know, let's go check that out. But I feel the same way about Galveston. I've been in and out of Galveston so many times. I'm amazed that, that, that Galveston apparently has this mystique of being a really, really nice uh, place. And I don't want to disparage on it, but I don't, I don't find Galveston to be all that really appealing. The water isn't that great. It's unfortunately it's, kind of brown from the Mississippi river. It's not that Galveston is dirty per se. It's just, unfortunately all that current just happens to go that way. So it's just funny when, when you're actually removed from your area that, uh, you know, you get this perception of, of things like, uh, seeing, uh, the, the Johnson space center, I drive, you know, around that almost every day. So I don't even think to look at it. And, and there's so many tours that are always out there taking pictures. And sometimes when I think about it, I just kind of snicker like, yeah, you just don't appreciate things that you see daily. Yeah. It is easy to take your, uh, you know, your home city for granted and, and some of the cool things that are there. Um, all right. Since we're on the subject of Houston, Jody, we should wrap up with a little Texans talk. Um, so Lamar Miller was nice enough to bust out with a hundred yard rushing game and a touchdown when he was starting against me in a league where I really needed a win this week. Uh, what is up with the Houston backfield, Jody? Does it belong to Miller or is Deonta Foreman going to ever threaten Miller's leading man role when he finally makes it back from his ruptured Achilles? Well, that's the thing. Uh, Bill O'Brien came from the uh, Bill Belichick 
school of keeping things close to the vest and not spilling anything. So we're never going to know, you know, if Foreman's going to have any role until he comes back. And Achilles injuries, those are, those tend to be really, really terrible injuries for running backs. A lot of running backs, I mean, maybe even half or more are never able to come back and be the same players they were after such an injury. And, and Foreman hurt his so late in the season that, you know, here he has not been cleared from the pup list. The last I've heard locally is that he's still not expected to be cleared anytime soon. And uh, Pat, I feel you with Lamar Miller, you know, at this point, I, I think when you're doing your rankings at fantasy pros and Pat, you've, you know, I peaked in 2012. It's been all downhill since that for me, you've managed to actually be really, really good at it. So you understand what it's like when a guy's just been cold for a while and you're like, you know what, I'm just finally moving him up, moving him down to, to RB 33 because I, I just can't deal with this anymore. It's just so inefficient. He's not getting in touches. Offense has looked dreadful. I, you know, it's about time for me to go ahead and, and, stop overranking him every week. And sure enough, every time you do that, there they go. They bust out that hundred yard game and put up a touchdown. And, uh, you know, it's a, it, it's just a, a frustrating team in general. I've, you know, I had credentials for, for two years, uh, back before, uh, when I was covering the Texans for uh, USA today. And, you know, it was interesting, um, how, <laughs> how the players are, are, are kind of trained and coached by, a by O'Brien to be, you know, I won't say paranoid, but not exactly. Um, they're they're kind of coached in the Patriots way per se of keeping things close to the vest and, and not divulging anything and, and always using things like we and us and, and uh, you know, pretty, pretty interesting it, it, right now. Um, uh, you know, I find the Texans to be a, a, a very bland, uh, boring offense. Uh, I know Deshaun Watson is, is hurt right now, so they're keeping things close to the vest and, and not letting him turn loose and run. And we saw, you know, a pretty underwhelming performance this week. And, you know, let's not get too excited about uh, Texans rolling off four straight wins. They've beaten uh, the Colts, uh, the Bills, uh, you know, and uh, Jaguars. And when Blake Bortles is on one of his uh, – terrible runs that, that that we see him go on so Texans defense is actually built interestingly like it's like the perfect match for uh, Jacksonville's offense just what they try to do just happens to be like a O'Brien just happens to have Jacksonville's number but we'll see when uh, you know when Texans start playing the Eagles and teams are a little bit better uh, you, you know we'll see we'll see what, what what they're made of but you know props to them for coming back from uh, 0-3 and especially that Home loss at a Giants, which is just unacceptable. Uh, to think that this could potentially be another Bill O'Brien nine and seven uh, AFC South Championship special. <laughs> it could be. I mean, they left. Uh, you know, they left Jacksonville in ruins this week, in fighting and a quarterback benching. Oh yeah, and now they've got a and now they've got a trip across the pond to uh, play the Eagles. So that's going to be interesting dynamic for both of those teams who are kind of had a. A pretty pretty bad week seven, and they gotta you know regroup quickly and and always take on that challenge of, of flying over to England. So remember that was it last year, Pat? That I want to say it was Baltimore. The Jaguars came out of nowhere and just destroyed the Ravens. It was like forty four to seven or something like that. Wasn't that the uh, Mercedes Lewis three touchdown game? <laughs> yes, he had like no catches all year, and then all of a sudden, yeah, that was. I don't expect that coming from Jacksonville, but you know, every once in a while when. Uh, Good Blake Bortles shows up and surprises you. You just never know. You can't count that guy out. Jody, I am going to let you out of the hot seat. Uh, thank you so much for joining me here this week. I, I feel like I could talk to you another hour easily, but uh, you know, I know we both got uh, 
kids and bedtime obligations here. So uh, before I let you go, can you give people your Twitter handle again and tell them where they can find your work? Uh, my uh, target analysis uh, and uh, waiver wire period that I write for Fantasy Pros is available, obviously, at uh, fantasypros.com. And uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm not as active as I used to be because this is the time of year when, uh, you know, as Pat can attest, uh, we're doing a lot of work out there for you. And we hope every, you know, everyone appreciates it. But uh, absolutely hit me up on Twitter at Jody Smith NFL. Well, Jody, yeah, thanks again for stopping by. And uh, hopefully you can come back soon and we can, you know, regale listeners with some more tales about how we used to do things on stone tablets with chisels and, uh, you know, all, all that other good stuff from back in the day. Yeah, I'm really looking forward. I'm going to find the uh, Purple Mead notebook where uh, we gave uh, Lawrence Taylor the MVP of our Super Bowl because he had like 23 sacks in a game. But uh, that'll be a a different podcast. All right. Thanks again, Jody. Talk soon. People, that is going to do it for this week's show. I want to once again thank my guest, Jody Smith of FantasyPros.com and CBS Sportsline. And thank you to my producer, Mr. Colm Kelly, the finest producer of fantasy football podcasts in all of Ireland. Find Colm on Twitter at Overtime Ireland, and be sure to check out the podcast that he co-hosts with the great Sean Siegel. It's called Rotoviz Overtime, and you can find it on rotoviz.com. I also want to thank my colleague at thefootballgirl.com, Melissa Jacobs. Be sure to check out her great podcast. Actually, it's not just one great podcast. She does the Football Girl podcast every week where she gets some fantastic guests like Andrea Kramer and Sam Ponder. But Melissa and her husband, Dave, also co-host the terrific Football Date Night podcast. This is a fun one. Melissa and Dave put their kids to bed on Sunday nights. They usually open a bottle of wine and then they talk about the day's games. I find it especially entertaining to listen to Football Date Night after a Chicago Bears loss since Dave is a Bears fan and always has some wonderfully cynical takes after losses. Uh, And last but not least, I want to thank all of you for listening. I really do appreciate your support and feel honored that you take the time out of your day to listen to my blathering. So, okay, everyone, that's it for now. I will be back next week with another great guest. Until then, be good to each other. Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in. Are you?